now at session number five. We're talking about spiritual living, and I'd like to start off, like I often do in these, with a little review so we can orient ourselves uh, with a little bit of context. So, spiritual living, what are we talking about? Um, One of my favorite ways to think about this is to think about simply what it means for anything to be alive. And the definition of a living thing is that it takes from its environment what it needs in order to sustain itself. So it's pulling in resources, pulling in nutrients from what is around it in its environment that it can access in order to stay alive. Spiritual living, then, is the act of engaging in the spiritual environment, which we cannot see. God is spirit, right? In order to receive what our spirits need to live and thrive. And what comes into our spirit, as we'll talk about in a little bit, then ends up working its way out into the various layers of who we are. So, spiritual living. Um, Salvation, then, we talked about is the description for this daily experience of growing in that spiritual reality. Because um, what is around us is God, and what God is, is good. So the extent to which we learn how to access that spiritual reality around us is also the extent to which we will experience what are called the blessings of the kingdom of God. And I've been using words like love and joy and peace and hope. So salvation is something that we then participate in, which God makes available to us. So we have a job to do. We have a part to play. And that is something that we then put work into and make of, to make available to ourselves. And that's where grace comes in because we're not very good at that. And um, we, in fact, every step we take, because it will be a new step for us, we will in some sense be beginners at, although we will get better and better at things as we go along. But we need help. And so grace is, think of grace as the fuel that powers all of our efforts. So what is that grace? Talked about it in two layers. The first one is the grace to be who we are, fully loved, fully accepted as we are so that we can then accept ourselves. Um, But what that does for us is it allows us to begin to work with God in our salvation in a way that does not feed the need for self-justification. So that grace frees us from the need to make ourselves anything or think that by our work, then we are earning something. So our efforts become not just our own efforts at trying to be something, but when we release ourselves or abandon ourselves to love in that way and to grace in that way, Grace then empowers our work, becomes empowered by God. And as we move out of our isolated egos and our sense of, you know, fighting against one another or others or against God or trying to be something, we open ourselves up to a greater and unimaginably more wonderful source that then fuels and empowers our work. So that as we do what we do, instead of it killing us and draining us and all of those things, we actually 
receive more and more and can work more and more according to grace. Um, there's a little warning attached to this, which is the flip side, which is that to try to address things like our behavior or others' behavior without addressing these deeper needs of the soul for love and acceptance, we end up making the mistake that Pharisees made, which Jesus called making them making others or ourselves twice a son of hell that you are. So this is Jesus' warning. Um, we cannot focus on the behavior without focusing on what is beneath it. So there's this interesting dual dynamic. We begin by being focused on the center, the, the heart of the person, the soul of the person, on what is unseen. And yet at the same time, we must act and do things, however clumsily or awkwardly it feels. It's the only way to grow. We can't just live in our heads and not do anything and think that we will grow, but at the same time, we can't just do stuff and think that we don't have to pay attention to our inner life. They both matter. So our actions alone, of course, have consequences, um, both for who we become and how we affect others, but without simultaneously engaging what is going on beneath the surface or the why behind the what, we'll end up defaulting into this self-justification or what I sometimes call just performance. We are putting on a performance for ourselves, for God, for others. It doesn't matter. It's all self-justification at that point. Here's another way to think about what the process is that I'm describing. And I'll start with a question. Why doesn't God just show us all of our sins, you know, all of our faults, failures, missteps, inabilities, and just say, get to work? <laughs> um, well, obviously, we couldn't handle it. It would destroy us. And we would say that is unloving, just like it would be unloving to, to confront a child with all of their mistakes and inabilities and things they don't know, their ignorances, all the time. Instead, we allow for grace, for certain things. We just allow them to be as they are, and we truly, fully accept them as they are. And we prioritize only the most important things because we know that it would destroy them to endure constant uh, criticism, constant awareness of all their faults or inabilities. So we have to match how far we can challenge a child or a student to grow with how much love they can receive from us. And that's a challenge. And similarly, we won't be able to look at or develop certain aspects of ourselves so I can't even look at certain aspects or be honest about certain aspects of myself until I am mature enough to acknowledge that God's love can match that. So to the extent that I believe that some failure of mine has the ability or power to say something about who I am, my identity, I really don't have the ability to look at it yet because it will then just destroy me. <music> In other words, the more deeply I know God's love, the freer I am to be brutally honest about myself and engage then in the process of growing my character. And I think that when we look in the scriptures of Jesus, Jesus is very aware of all this. And all you have to do is just think about all the things that we see Jesus not fixing. <laughs> um, Judas, not the least.
my tradition that I come from is sort of a big challenge and that has been deconstructed and I kind of want to offer a reconstruction. Um, the tradition I come from, uh, as we get into spiritual living and, and we think about what is a spiritual life, there is a very confusing approach to what to do with emotions and what role the emotions play in the spiritual life. Um, on the one hand, what is often communicated through sermons or teachings is that the spiritual life is characterized by all sorts of feelings. So uh, if you're really spiritual, you'll feel all these various things. You know, you should feel thankful. You'll feel love. You'll feel patient. You'll feel whatever. Um, but what is not acknowledged is that we have no direct control over what we may feel in any given moment. So on the one hand, I'm told that it's supposed to feel this way, and on the other hand, I have my actual life. <laughs> and in my actual life, if I'm honest, I would say I can't simply choose to feel thankful. I can do things that then can sort of maybe produce some kind of thankfulness, but I can't just will myself directly to be thankful or joyful or any of those things. And then what is often demonstrated in things like worship or prayer or whatever emphasizes almost exclusively experiencing certain emotions. So to worship or to pray sincerely then becomes identified with, now I'm feeling this way. And if I feel these feelings, that means that I am being sincere in my worship or my prayer. And I think there's an underlying assumption that somehow what we feel is determining whether or not we actually are sincere in our prayer or in our worship. Um, now, let's take a step back. As Christianity has been recovering from an era of teachings, let's say emotions don't matter, or that might even say that emotions are just plain bad, like emotions, all emotions are just bad, the pendulum has obviously swung, and so we're gaining an, an emotional awareness. Um, but in any correction, there's always the inherent possibility of overcorrection. And in the church, the overcorrection might mean that we become so focused on what we are feeling or not feeling that we find ourselves uh, in a paralyzed position. Because again, isn't it wonderful when we have those feelings? The other uh, edge of that two-edged sword is, and yet I cannot control when I may or may not feel that way. How I feel on any given day um, is not always up to me. And it might sometimes feel like the largest and most important thing about me. And if I don't like how I feel, what am I supposed to do with that? And oftentimes we're left with kind of two choices. One is I can either ignore it, or two, I feel like I have to just surrender to it. And what I'm describing in this picture, I think is one of these ways that we tend to get stuck in spiritual living, and we don't know where to go from here. Um, we know we must pay attention to our emotions because what we are experiencing in that sense can give us clues to what is happening beneath the surface. And so we know we need to be aware. We know we need to uh, be open to our emotions and to be honest with our emotions and to tend to what's going on. But those emotions are generally not very good guides for spiritual life because they are so fickle. I can feel what I feel for all sorts of reasons and my body can't always discern why I'm feeling the way that I'm feeling. Um, I might feel the same way from being in a terrible argument with someone as I do if I have allergies, you know? Um, so 
uh, I can have the same kind of headache be produced from both things, and it just feels like a headache. Um, and neither are emotions good goals. Because, for instance, let's say I have a goal of wanting to be a, a truly happy person, and happy in the best sense of the word. I can't become truly happy by trying to make myself happy. We know this is true, that pursuing me being a happy person doesn't result in me being a happy person. So the emotions, like so much in the spiritual life, are the byproduct of something that is going on at a deeper level. And that is the core or the foundation of our spiritual life. And I hope that you can hear me as I'm describing this, say that our emotional life is crucial, but it is not where we live from. Our emotional life is the dominant connection between what is going on in our mind and what we experience in our bodies, and therefore it is extremely important, but it is not the ground of our being. It is not where we, where we are truly live from or where we must live from, although we certainly, if we don't know any different, we can fully live from our emotions, which is a very difficult and frustrating place to live from, and I can say that out of experience. So unless we find another place to live from, some kind of a deeper ground that we can stand on than how we experience our emotions on any given day, our emotions will drive us. And that is a dangerous place to be because, again, we have no direct control over that. So what is that deeper place? And this is the crux of what I want to talk about today, which is that it is often referred to in the Bible as our heart, which paradoxically is not, according to the scriptures, how I feel. (laughs) And yet we, of course, in our culture have thought about the heart as really mostly how we feel. Well, let's take a look together. So we have um, a couple interesting verses I want to look at in the scriptures. One is Jesus with the parable of the sower, and I'm sure most of us have heard this, where we have the the seed that's being scattered, and it lands on different type of soil. In one of Jesus' explanations of this parable, the good soil is referred to as a good heart. It's that place where the word or the gospel lands and then somehow takes root in this thing called the heart. Um, The other verse that I want to look at and probably spend a little more time in here is Psalm 4. Uh, In the 23rd verse of that psalm, we have the, the statement that you've probably heard, guard your heart with all diligence, or above all things, for from it flow the wellsprings of life. Guard your heart. With all diligence, for from it, from your heart, flow the wellsprings of life. So we have a modern concept of heart that identifies heart with our emotions, which we then contrast to our mind when we think of our intellect. I'm using the term mind as the place of our emotions and intellect and heart as something else. Uh, I was reminded of the, the sermons that I heard as a teenager about guarding your heart And it's usually used as this um, warning, you know, to teenagers not to get too emotionally attached 
to one another. So guarding your heart in that sense and uh, kind of becomes this, I need to be careful not to let myself feel certain things. Well, the ancient view of heart and the way that is usually referred to in Scripture is actually more what you and I would think of as our will. And I'm going to describe the will as the place where you set your intention. It is the center of your life. And many of us might have a concept of the will that focuses on action, output, what we do, okay? But I want to talk about the will here in its being state. Um, the, the will has a role before we do things in setting our intention. That is the will in a being state. And it is regardless and even previous to how I feel about it or even what I'm able to actually accomplish or able to actually do. It is what I would intend to do. Um, and our intention relies you will know this right away, it's going to rely heavily on whatever ideas, thoughts, and feelings have been given to us. So what is it we are intending and why? Well, that's going to be based on what we've received. So as an example, if you've heard stories about Rottweilers attacking people, you will probably intend to avoid Rottweilers rather than to own one. But if you've had experiences and heard stories of how wonderful Rottweilers are as family dogs, you might then form an intention to own a Rottweiler. So here's a picture. And picture these as concentric circles. I'm going to start on the outside. The biggest circle is that you have your body. And that through your body and your physical senses, you receive input from your environment. Sound, taste, touch, smell, sight, all the things, right? And that then becomes the basis for the ideas that enter into your mind, information, thoughts, and feelings. So these then are the tools that you have to work with to form an intention. Based on what you've received, then you have to decide what you're going to do. And then the process reverses. You set your intention and then you choose what to focus your mind on based on that intention. And then ideally, that directs your body's action. So we have this coming in and going out. So fundamentally, we could say you cannot go toward something without an idea of what it is you're going toward. And this is demonstrated in Jesus' teaching with you know the good tree, Matthew 7, Matthew 12, um, the mouth speaks or the output things come out based on what is in the heart. That's where the input lands. So if we go back to Psalm 4, uh, from it, from the heart, then flow out the wellsprings of life. Wellsprings being the source, the genesis, the beginning. Um, this, this heart that we have within us is what God is really most concerned about. And that what is formed in your intention is based on the received ideas that have come to you, which is why it matters so much what we listen to and what we allow to come into us, because it, it, that's all we have to work with. So I was thinking about David, King David in the Old Testament. It says he was a man after God's own heart. Reinterpret that statement. It's not a statement about what David feels. It is a statement about David setting his intention to be what he, intend, what he believed God would intend. 
So it is a subjugation or a surrendering of David's will or his intention to God's will or God's intention. Now, here's a crazy thought for a second. You may think, well, what's the difference between that and just like feeling like you want something? Like, what is the difference between a will and to want something? And this is the the best way I've heard of describing it. You might want something, but you can still want to want something else or want to not want that thing. So what is the deeper wanting? So I could say, wow, I really want that, like last night for me, I really want that ice cream right now. But there also is a deeper place in me that says, I really want to not want that ice cream. What is the wanting that is not wanting what I want? That is my heart. That is my will in a being state. And it is extremely powerful. However, on its own, just like all of our faculties, it's limited. So let's think again. Let's take a step back. Let's think about love in this context. This is why we say that love in the agape sense, the love that Jesus is talking about, the God-type love, is not an emotion. It is not a feeling. It is an act of the will or heart. And so I could ask myself, what do I truly intend for another person? Not what do I feel about them right now. Not what am I able to accomplish for them even right now. But in the center of who I am, what do I intend? And then if I intend that, what what sort of actions then might that lead to? So in this sense, love absolutely cannot be a feeling because feelings, as we've said, are out of our direct control. And it's not just a belief because that's just... Uh, that leaves us in theory. I love that love is often, (laughs) that was an accident, I appreciate that love is often translated as charity because charity is love in action. It is then the will put into motion. And of course, in an ideal sense, our emotional life and our intellectual life would all be on board with that. But here's another way to think about it. My decisions are then reflecting something about what I truly love, what is deep down inside of me, what my, what my will is set to act for. So love then is being ready and willing to act for the good of something. So that biblical God love, that agape love, is the willingness then to do this for another person, even at a personal cost. So here's an interesting situation. I personally believe that at the core of every human is what you might call original goodness, is goodness. That that is the center of, of every human, that we come from love, created by love, destined for love, but that that original goodness and original intent gets buried in a life of being hurt and in a life of learning how to survive and in not knowing or experiencing God's love the way that we were created to know and experience the way that God loves us. So all these other intentions get away, and again, get in the way. That's the parable of the sower. Worries about life. Um, You know, all sorts of concerns and, and various issues get in the way. And they cause problems for that thing that is trying to take root and reshape our hearts, that spiritual, what Jesus calls the word, that life-giving property that would come and speak to us at a deep place and begin to transform and shape and reshape our intention. Another way of calling that is the gospel. It is the compelling vision 
of life with God in God's kingdom that is something that is so incredibly good that it it changes and transforms our hearts, our intentions towards ourselves and towards others. Um, It's described as the pearl of great price that you would sell everything for or the treasure in the field that you would sell all that you own for just to buy that field so you could have that treasure. This is an issue, right? Deep down, it's there, it's good, but it is covered and it is hampered. Um, And it's sometimes got a strangled hold on it. And then we behave in all sorts of ways and we feel all sorts of things and we have all sorts of thoughts in our mind about all this. Well, what are we, what are we instructed to do with this? Um, I have three, three things and then a practice I'm going to invite you to. The first thing is this. We are invited to surrender. Um, surrender, surrendering our will, may sound like something that is for, <laughs> put this in air quotes, advanced Christians, Right? Um, in our Western culture, and we've kind of been trained in a church environment that is fairly consumeristic, to say the least, um, we want things, (laughs) and then we approach Christianity, and we can even preach Christianity in a sense of, um, this is what you want, this is a good thing, and if you get this good thing, you will have what you want. And I'm afraid that that often sets people up for thinking that this life is about focusing on what we want, that the spiritual life and the way towards what we do truly want is by focusing on getting what we want. When in fact, I believe that the way to what we truly want is to let go. And when Jesus says, whoever wants to come after me gets to take up their cross, um, gets to lose their life, this is surrender. This is the essence of the spiritual life. It's, it's the beginning place. It's not the ending place. It's not the advanced place. It is where it begins. Um, this is what it means for Jesus to become our Lord and teacher. Um, that John 13 reference where Jesus says to his disciples, now that I have become your Lord and teacher. It is the surrendering to Jesus as the one who has the way who has the truth and has the life, and that I recognize that I have all sorts of desires, all sorts of wants, and some of those may be good, some of those not so good, but this life is not a life of me pursuing my agenda or my wants or my intentions, but taking my intention, my will, my heart, and bringing it to God's heart and saying, God, what I really want Deep down within me, what I acknowledge is your heart. And that I get to live that way. And that's something I constantly then do as a follower of Jesus. In fact, praying the prayer, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is just another way of talking about our will, our heart. In the kingdom, in any kingdom, there's only room for one king, one one will. Um, and so it is a, an expression of trust and confidence in the goodness of God that I can do that, that anyone can do that. Um, before we go too far with this, I just want to acknowledge that some people might imagine this as, be, as like me becoming nothing. So I just become sort of this mindless 
you know, robot, that I lose my sense of autonomy. But that picture is only based on a picture where if I retain my will and retain my perceived autonomy, that I can do what I want and choose what I want, exert my will as I see fit, um, as if I can do that right now. But in truth, I believe that we are always subject to a kingdom. Now, it's either going to be the kingdom of God or the kingdom of not God. And so I'm going to be in one or the other. I don't get to live in a bubble. That's what I believe. And I think that's the way why Paul says, you're going to be a slave to one or a slave to the other. Which would you rather be a slave to? To God's kingdom and to the goodness and to the love or the righteousness, whatever word you want to put in there, or to something else. So I think our first call into the kingdom, into life with God, into spiritual living, is that we have to constantly surrender our will and that that actually becomes the place of our greatest freedom and greatest strength. Secondly, I would say that we, uh, we are called to pray. <laughs> and prayer is something that we all can do. And it is an act of will to pray. Uh, we pray for ourselves. We pray for others we know. We pray for our world. And we pray in general that God's kingdom, as I was just saying, would come and that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in this sense, prayer is something that anybody can do. It is putting your will into the, uh, the easiest place of action you can do. You can say these words, and you and I can do our best to intend what we say. And so, have you ever done the, the practice of praying for someone who has hurt you? you probably generally don't start out by feeling like praying for them. And yet, there is something in you that says, this is good and this is right, and I intend this. And I'm going to choose to intend good for this person and blessing for this person. And so then a life of choosing to pray according to God's will, setting my will kind of beneath or subjugated to that will, is a life then that becomes more and more governed by God's will. It is probably the simplest and easiest thing we can do in order to put ourselves in that place. And that's why it would have been unthinkable for any of the the serious followers of Jesus in the past centuries to think that anyone could be substantially transformed into the image and likeness of Christ without being devoted to a life of prayer. It is, again, it is a starting point. If, if If I choose to surrender, then the first step I take is to pray. And then the last thing that I would say, the third thing, is that we can choose to serve. Service as well as an act of the will. In fact, it's the gold standard for what it means to put love in action, to love one another. Um, We often obviously don't feel like loving other people. We don't feel loving toward them. But of course, that doesn't mean that we actually can't love them. In fact, to choose to serve others or acting for their goods, regardless of how we feel, in that moment, is not being insincere. Um, It just means that we're living from a deeper place. It means that we are living from our hearts and who we intend to be. And we would probably all acknowledge that the greatest test of love 
is what someone would do for another person specifically when they don't feel like it. And that is, uh, I think, undeniable. I think in, when I look in my relationships and I think, well, I don't feel like doing this, and yet choosing to serve someone else in that state, is that not the greatest expression of love? Is that somehow insincere? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. So I'd like to suggest a practice for this season. Um, if prayer is something that you have found difficulty in making headway into and in doing consistently and sort of faithfully presenting yourself to God in this way and, and committing yourself to saying certain things or to, in, to setting your intention in certain ways, I want to invite you to a season of, of doing this. Um, you may already have some practices or something you're doing this season. That's great. And if what I'm about to walk you into is something that pairs or partners with that well, I invite you to join in that way. And like I said, if you don't yet, um, consider this. Um, consider praying the Lord's Prayer on a daily basis if you can. So each statement in the Lord's Prayer um, is a request. And it's also a point of reflection and conversation between us and God. So the statements, and there's different ways of dividing them up. I've got them divided up into six statements. But they provide a framework for covering what is the main sort of areas of life that we often just kind of get tripped up in. They're, it's, a, it's like a microcosm of Jesus' teachings of the gospel and how we can then set our intention towards living the gospel. Interestingly... Um, the process of sitting with these ideas actually deals heavily with our emotional life uh, because we can't separate our thoughts and our, our emotions from this process. But it does so in a context that helps us move through the emotions rather than get stuck in them because there's an, as a, an acknowledgement of, the, of, of how we feel or what state we're in, but there's also a emotion, a forward setting of the intention of this is where I'm choosing to go. So what I'm going to do is take a few moments to walk through each of these statements, each of the ideas, and provide just a few thoughts and ideas for how to engage with that part of the prayer. And then you can decide on your own how to scale it appropriately for yourself. Um, you can do this in a few minutes. You can do this in an hour. Um, the point is not trying to feel something or worrying about what you do or don't feel as you pray, the point is, intend what you say. And one of my favorite quotes that I've heard fairly recently is from Thomas Merton, who said, with God, a little bit of sincerity goes a really long way. Just a little bit of sincerity. So don't worry about how you're feeling or what, you know, what sorts of thoughts and ideas accompany this as you do this. Just do it. And do your best to intend what you say and then live in it for a while and see what God does. And this is the confidence that I have. Is I think that the Holy Spirit is so eager to partner with us in anything that we do that if we commit ourselves to a season of this and if we can find a healthy way to do it and navigate some of the landmines and things that we encounter, that we cannot help but be changed by doing practices like these. And I should say, uh, along with that, if this is a tall order for you, if this is a big challenge, um, you, you should definitely find someone to partner with and talk with about your experience. 
make a note of the of the things you bump into as you go along. Um, it could be anything. It could be the words. Um, it could be certain ideas. It could be certain places you're getting stuck. Uh, just make a point of of having a helpful conversation with someone who is either doing this too or someone who has done this in the past and can help you kind of work through those things so that they aren't continuing to be sticking points, okay? So you might discover as you're going along that you cannot feel like you can intend something. You feel like there's there's a roadblock. Um, and that roadblock may be an emotional experience, some some even sort of traumatic experience that you have gone through, or it might just mean that you don't really have a clear sense yet of what this statement or what this phrase is because I'm not doing a good job of explaining it. So again, this is a great point of study on your own and discussion with others. Um, but hopefully what I'm about to go through will set you up to do this fairly well. Our first statement, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's the first statement. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. The best way that I have found to enter into this statement and just to sit with this for a moment is to think of the, the idea of our Father being, um, it's an expression of me knowing that God is here with me and has nothing but goodness to offer me. That God is like the perfect parent in that way. And to say that God is in heaven doesn't mean that God is far away. In fact, uh, it's the opposite. The kingdom of the heavens is not just far away. It's, you know, it's all around us. And in the Jewish understanding, it was right here. And Jesus says it's, the kingdom of heavens is at hand. It's right, it's right here. Hallowed be your name. So somehow... If I can picture the goodness of God with me, surrounding me, accepting me, welcoming me, joining me, I have to picture that so that everything that I then do in my life and go forward from, and I can picture my work, I can picture my, my family life or my friend life, um, I can picture all the interactions that I have, that somehow that goodness would be evident in me through what I do. So I want God's name to be hallowed or honored, and I want to do that, but also I want God's name to be hallowed or honored through me. And so I can invite this goodness to come and surround me and pervade me, and it's my intention then that that goodness is what people experience when they experience me. Sometimes you can sit with our Father just for a while until until you can really sense the goodness of that heavenly parent who loves you with an undying love. The second statement, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the essence of now I surrender. So I acknowledge, first of all, that I am completely loved and accepted, our Father in heaven. And now I, I make a choice. I set my intention. God, it is your will that I desire. The things that you would have happen in this world, um, that is what I want to see happen. And I have all sorts of competing desires, and there are things that I want and hope for, and I recognize all those things, but I'm going to choose now to be a, a, a person of your kingdom, a citizen of your kingdom who says, I trust that your will is ultimately best, and I surrender my will to your will. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, just as it is in heaven. We want earth to become a more heavenly place. The third statement, give us this day our daily bread. After accepting my acceptedness, our Father in heaven, after surrendering my agendas and my intentions to God's, your kingdom come and your will be done, now I'm in a very free place to ask for what I need. What do I need today? What do I need? What are the basic things that I need in order to be able to live this way? Um, Are there very just simple, real situations that you would ask for help with? Um, Maybe what you need today is as simple as the sustaining awareness of God being with you. Um, Maybe what you would ask for is grace to help in a certain thing. Uh, Maybe what you would ask for is trust. Um, Trust that no matter what is happening in your life, um, that you're going to be okay. These are some really basic, fundamental human needs. And we can feel free to make these requests and present them to God. And I would also say, this is a great time to then present the needs of others. Give us this day, not just give me, but give us this day our daily bread. What do we need? We can pray for family and friends. Um, We can pray for people all over the world. We can pray for things that are so much bigger than us that we have no control over. There's plenty of things that we could add to the daily bread list. Fourth statement, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Maybe you prefer forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors or forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. This is then in the light of knowing that I am loved, um, that God is good and God's will is wonderful and I can trust God's will. And I have acknowledged the things that I might need in my day, the things that we all might need. Now I can be pretty honest, right? Now, <clears throat> I've, we've talked about this before, and I don't want to spend too much time here, but you might struggle, like I have in the past, with why am I asking for forgiveness if I believe that I'm already forgiven? For me, what this has become lately is a time to rest in humility, So it's very easy for me um, to go on living my life and sort of not be realizing (laughs) that little, you know, elements of pride or various things are sort of, uh, you know, sneaking their way in. And so by taking a moment to say, God, forgive us our sins on a personal level, I can, in the freedom that I have and the love that I am accepted with, I can acknowledge now humbly and honestly, these are the things that I acknowledge before you about, that that I know of my own brokenness. And that would then set me up to receive a forgiveness. So again, it's not about begging God to give us something that God isn't willing to give. It's about making myself open to receiving it. And then in that kind of humility, I am free to extend it to other people. So forgive us our sins. I can take a moment and call to mind the things that I would say, this is not healthy. This is not who I want to be. This is not who I intend to be. And I can in that moment receive acceptance and then do what Jesus called us to do, which is to extend that very forgiveness and acceptance to others, to wipe out all debts. What a wonderful way to live, spending every day having my my debts erased and then erasing the debts that I think that others owe me.
fifth statement, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from all evil. I'm wrapping these two ideas into one statement, just to say, when I pray lead us into temptation, I tend to think, God, help me to be aware of how limited I am, of how easily I am distracted, how easily I am tempted in any direction. Um, maybe just tempted to forget. Um, and when I pray, lead me not into temptation, I'm simply saying, God, stay close to me because I acknowledge that I need you. That, that's where I sit with this for a while. And delivers from all evil sort of takes that to the next level, which is, I don't have any defense but you. I'm only here but by your grace. I exist by your love and grace. But deliver us from all evil because I know that I can't trust myself to handle it. Again, I think this is entering into an attitude of humility and sitting in this place that says, uh, keep me from temptation. Keep me from all the bad things that would come against me. I want to do your will. I want to attend what is right, but I'm fully aware of and acknowledging my own limitations. And then finally, the sixth statement, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. I like to sit with this statement um, as an expression of remembering that this is so much bigger than me. Um, <clears throat> that what God is doing and um, the future that is coming, it will happen. Um, in fact, it already is happening. Sometimes we can get so caught up in our own world, and I know that I made this a very personal prayer, but all of these are corporate statements, forgive us, lead us, give us. Um, we can make this bigger, but oftentimes, you know, we're dealing with our own worlds. We're dealing with uh, our own situations. So to pray, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, it takes it and it puts us in our small world, our little, you know, pinprick of reality that we experience, and it puts us in this wonderful, beautiful, bigger context of confidence and trust that God is doing this. And in truth, whether I pray or not, God will be doing this, but I want to be a part of it, and I want to speed the process. I want to help this happen. So God, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever, and forever has already begun. Forever's been going on for a long, long time, <laughs> and it's still going on, and we get to be a part of it. And I am, I am in this moment of forever, and I will be a part of it forever. So I hope those are some helpful thoughts for encouraging you to sit with these ideas in prayer. Um, and again, the goal being just to pray, pray this statement, make it meaningful to yourself, do your best to intend it, and then to move on and to make this a practice for a season as a way of entering into how do we set our intention, how do we set our will and live from there, and to have a lot of patience for ourselves as we begin processes like these. you're here, and I hope what was talked about will be helpful for you going forward, um, either just in your own thought process, or your own discussions, or your spiritual practice. So, as we continue on, I would encourage you to remain faithful to those things, and like I said, give yourself a lot of grace and a lot of patience, 
and we will keep moving forward in this spiritual life together. Thanks for being here. Thank you.